Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here. This is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. I'm recording from the inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is the fourth day of April 2022. We got cut off on the last lecture because, as usual, I wasn't paying attention to time. So we'll get right back into it. We were talking about dyslipidemia, type 2 diabetes, and we were um, discussing some of the intracellular interactions within the adipose, and that's where we're going to pick up. I was talking about oil droplets, and I told you that esterification of glycerol occurs with free fatty acids, and that's how you generate via the Kennedy pathway, triacylglycerol, and then that gets packaged into a lipid droplet, which has a limit membrane, and that limit membrane is enriched with a protein called perilipin. So that's where we were last time. So that white adipocyte, the functions of that adipocyte is you can carry out biosynthesis and storage of tricyclycerol, but you also have a lipolytic pathway, and that's controlled again by the multiple levels of endocrine, neuroendocrine, autocrine, and paracrine systems that are local, that is directly associated with the adipocyte and with the adipose, and also from other organs, such as the liver and the pancreas and the central nervous system is uh, intimately involved because of the adipokines that are generated from the adipose tissue that signal through the uh, hypothalamus. And so that's a major function of the adipose as as a endocrine organ, as well as a storage organ that controls overall bioenergetic and surveillance physiology. By surveillance, I mean it's, it's intimately associated with the immune system. This is because there are resident immune cells, which when they are activated can trigger a local and then a systemic inflammatory response. These are macrophages but also because of the secretion of free fatty acids from the adipose during pathophysiological stages of obesity. And this can yield high levels of inflammation uh, throughout the body, particularly in organs such as the liver, the kidney, the cardiac, and of course, skeletal muscle and central nervous system. So you have circulating lipoproteins and you have circulating serum albumin, and you also have some non-esterified free fatty acid. Now, these free fatty acids are carboxylic acids, but basically when they're free in circulation, they get bound to other proteins, but again, non-covalently. These are hydrophobic interactions, remember, because these are lipids. So because of that, Fatty acids can be trafficked in circulation in a non-specific way, as well as a very specific way via the multiple species of lipoprotein that we've gone over several times here in lecture. So I want you to understand that free fatty acids, although they're not soluble in the aqueous environment of circulation, they are nevertheless trafficked. So they can form micelles as well as they can, those micelles can bind to or adhere to other proteins or other cells that are in circulation. And many of these, of course, would be uh, lymphocytes and leukocytes. Yeah. So you get an idea of how fatty, free fatty acids 
not serified free fatty acids can make it to multiple organ sites. And when they do that, then they can, they can induce a lipotoxic event, which can uncouple the um, polarizability of membranes. And when that happens, you change the flux of nutrients and signaling. Hence, you start to generate a pathophysiological response. Because okay? you shouldn't have high levels of non-esterified fatty acid in circulation. They should be esterified. They should be bound to lipoproteins because that's where regulation normally occurs for whole body homeostasis. And this is where the problems arise. So talked about the various lipases that will function though in the adipose. We talked about the homosensitive lipose, lipase, the adipose triglycerol lipase, and the monoacylglycerol lipase. All three of those are regulated, as we were mentioning at the end of last lecture, by either cyclic AMP or cyclic GMP um, signal transduction cascades that start in the membrane that are then linked very often to protein kinases. Some of the protein kinases involved are, are protein kinase A, protein kinase B, and protein kinase D. And we've talked about some of them already. Now let's emphasize PKA. Protein kinase A will directly phosphorylate hormone-sensitive lipase, and it will actually induce its association. It'll cause that, that enzyme to associate with the lipid droplet outer membrane, that perilipin-enriched membrane. And then, therefore, allow for hydrolysis, right? Because that's what the lipase is going to do, break down the triacylglycerol. Now, there are many other functions of the adipose, as I said, this whole endocrine control, and it's involved in the production of leptin and adiponectin. And you know that that plays a major role in the appetite signaling through the POMC, the CART nuclei, uh, the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus, but also, of course, the NPY and the agouti-related protein axis, right? So therein lie the orexigenic and anorexigenic pathways, which control the signaling that generates in uh, the central nervous system the correct neural impulses, that is, uh, action potentials, that will drive either the appetitive or non-appetitive state based on nutrient availability and nutrient satiation. Okay, so you can see where the adipose is very important here because of the direct linkage to obesity. So uh, what else do I want to say? Uh, circulating adiponectin enhances energy consumption and therefore lipid and glucose metabolism. And this occurs primarily in the um, liver and also in the skeletal muscle. And you know that leptin acts again in the hypothalamus and basically what it's supposed to do, unless you get leptin resistance, which is very common in type 2 diabetes, it's supposed to suppress appetite, right? Via that POMC locus, generation of those peptides. The lipolytic, lipogenic pathways in adipose tissue, of course, are tightly controlled by circulating concentrations of glucose and lipoproteins. And therein you get a, uh, in, an interaction, a fusion of the two major systems, the endocrine system and the neurological system. Okay? So we know that high fat diet doesn't have any real effect on adipose dysfunction. 
We know this because when you have a high-fat diet, it shuts down lipogenesis. We are oligenous organisms, so we store depot fat against a concentration gradient of excess carbon in the most reduced form. That's why it's in triacylglycerol and not in carbohydrate or in alpha-keto acids, right? Which means basically that that whole picture that I'm putting together for you explains why a high-fat diet doesn't induce hyperglycemia because you wouldn't be having high levels of glucose production because you wouldn't get insulin resistance because none of the regulation in those pathways is linked to high-fat diet because digestion is different than metabolism, storage, and then lipolytic-mediated movement of of fatty acids, in particular fatty acids, out of the adipose to the liver, for example, for beta-oxidation. Now, excessive high-caloric fat in the diet in the absence of carbohydrate or protein will, of course, add to adipose and will, of course, increase body mass. But this is actually not as unhealthy as when you have high carbohydrate. High carbohydrate will also induce multiple dysregulation of the intermediary metabolic pathways, which would not even be turned on by a high-fat diet. Because what would happen with a high-fat diet is you take uh, dietary triacylglycerol, it gets metabolized in the intestine, that is, it gets retailored, and then it gets loaded into chylomicrons, and chylomicrons start moving that triacylglycerol, phospholipid, and cholesterol ester to various uh, peripheral regions of the body. Then that chylomicron remnant docks into the liver, and that's where you start off with the VLDL, IDL, LDL pathway further trafficking dietary lipid. So the chylomicron becomes then a major source of dietary triacylglycerol. And yes, it goes directly to the adipose where nothing more than an increase in adipocyte diameter, that is an increase in volume, would occur from preformed triacylglycerol loaded into the adipose via that chylomicron pathway. Even the lipases that function on VLDL, LDL, and IDL directly from high-fat diet are very likely, when they're repackaged in the liver, to come into the adipose without further metabolism. So see, the lack of intermediary metabolic regulation means it cannot be corrupted by high-caloric-density foods, such as those associated with high-carbohydrate, because those tend to be the ones that are most often abused. Um, and what lead to um, the obesity epidemic. So that's just a really brief way of understanding why when you think about fat uh, deposition, that fat deposition follows along very common lines in humans. I told you a lot of visceral fat. But when you have fat that is synthesized because of excess calories from carbohydrate, that particular de novo synthesis, not the intake of fat in the diet, will then lead to all that dysregulation and also the dysregulation of fat deposition in places like the cardiac muscle or excessive lipid deposition that is not intramyocellular but 
intermyocellar in the skeletal muscle and therefore not regularly available for utilization for contraction via beta oxidation for ATP synthesis. So this is all part of the whole package of why the high fat diet studies that were done in the rodent models does not play directly in terms of intermediary metabolic dysfunction associated with metabolic metabolic syndrome, uh, which also has a kidney involvement, but also just with frank type 2 diabetes and dyslipidemia, right? Which is, again, a very important point to to, uh, bring out. So adipocyte enlargement basically is called hypertrophy. We've talked about this. And the reason that's the way that fat deposits increase is because it enables basically a plasticity of the adipose tissue that is in a caloric balance with dietary intake and utilization, right? So rather than causing massive cell division in the adipose, just the simple enlargement of the adipocyte allows for storage without any increase in turnover transcription factors, and therefore all the metabolic enzymes necessary to carry out cell division. It's another whole component that uh, you hear when you hear a lipid biochemist uh, discuss intermediate metabolism. And that's what I do. Even when I'm not teaching lipid biochemistry, I make sure that the general biochemistry students learn that. Now, when you get an upregulation of transcription factors, such as the peroxone proliferative activated receptor gamma or the CAT enhancer binding proteins, those are also known as CEBPs, and finally, the sterile regulatory element binding transcription factor, SREB, right? And with that, an inhibition of the Wnt beta catenin signaling, what all of that will do is promote a differentiation of pre-adipocytes into adipocytes, okay? So those transcriptional patterns also occur, not just a hypertrophy of the existing adipocytes. Now, when that occurs... It results in the expression of adipocyte-specific genes that include GLUT4. GLUT4, of course, is the glucose transporter. And, of course, the fatty acid binding protein 4, which will take up fatty acid. And that then further maintains glucose and lipid homeostasis for the entire system, right? So you have normal glucose to non-esterified fatty acid ratios that maintain a healthy adipose tissue. And overall, you get normalized insulin sensitivity. And all that really maintains when you take in more calories from this particular mode is a subcutaneous expansion of the adipocytes. So a disruption of adipogenesis in adipocyte-specific STAT3 minus mouse model actually leads to an increased general adiposity, a reduced energy expenditure, and this now full-blown dyslipidemia, high liver tricyclosterol levels, so the non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome. Okay, You see how that's unique to that rodent model. The same thing does not occur in humans, at least not um, given the hypertrophy that occurs because of the amount of calories taken in the diet. That's the important point.
Now, visceral adipose expansion through an increased lipid filling is dependent on adipocyte enlargement, as I've been saying. And it will result from an expression of the anti-adipogenic genes, because now you're going into hypertrophy rather than division. So what are the anti-adipogenic genes? GATA2, TGF beta 2. Those work together to reduce the expression of the pro-adipogenic genes. And those are going to be, again, PPAR gamma, BMP2, as well as BMP4, right? So the enlargement of fat cells leads to an increase in hormone-induced lipolysis. And what occurs then is a suppression of insulin-stimulated lipid and glucose uptake. This is where dyslipidemia then gets its uh, prodromal phase during the increase in obesogenic state that will result in an upregulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines from the resonant macrophages. And the two most common ones are TNF-alpha and MCP1, which we've talked about previously. And you also get then a corruption of adipokine uh, expression and secretion. For example, adiponectin and leptin. And this occurs actually when you have hypertrophic adipocyte buildup. So that means that adipogenesis would be a, a model way for adaptation to accommodate overnutrition. But that hypertrophy, once that takes over, promotes more directly insulin resistance and hyperlipidemia and hyperglucosemia. And then that, of course, bring, brings you into type 2 diabetes. Now, we know this because hypertrophic obesity is associated with a suppression of the adipogenic transcription in pre-adipocytes. So you are not, you are no longer creating, synthesizing, uh, differentiating adipocytes from pre-adipocytes. Now, there is a different sensitivity of pre-adipocytes to the adipogenic stimuli, okay? Now, in the animal model, you have to look at the fat pad. We don't have the same thing in humans. So this, again, is where you rely on the animal model to be able to secure an understanding of subcellular metabolism and discrimination of the pre-adipocyte to the adipocyte to the hypertrophic adipocyte, leading to insulin uh, resistance in the animal model, which is not the same mode of interaction that occurs in the human. And this is because major, the major function of this is because of the lack of control of appetite upon leptin resistance in the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. And this directly can be overridden in humans and it is otherwise regulated in the rodent model. And this leads to higher appetite, more and more caloric uptake, more and more adipogenesis, and an increase in hypertrophy of the pre-existing adipocytes. This then leads again, once again, to insulin resistance and dyslipidemia and hyperglucosemia. Okay, So this is where 
the, the depot specific hypertrophy plays a major role. Okay. Now, just to remind you what the SREBP is, first of all, it's a protein that you find in the endoplasmic reticulum. And both insulin and tumor necrosis factor alpha will induce the movement of this cell response element binding protein 1C from the ER to the Golgi, where proteases will work on that protein and move it from the Golgi to the interior of the nucleus, through the nuclear envelope. That is where the mature cell response element binding protein 1C will bind to sterile response element. Again, this is in the nucleus. This is a transcription factor now. And what that, when it binds with the SRE, what will, because of insulin or TNF-alpha, either one of those can stimulate this whole transport mechanism from ER to Golgi to nucleus. What you then get as in terms of increase in transcription will be acetylcoc carboxylase, fatty acid synthase, and glycero-3-phosphate acyl transferase. What are those three uh, enzymes are going to be doing, turning on fatty acid synthesis, turning on, uh, of course, the production of acetyl-CoA to malonyl-CoA, which will trigger fatty acid synthesis, and the glycero-3-phosphate transferase, which, of which will end up giving you high levels of depot fat, triacylglycerol. Right? So that's one, again, that's one of the genes that's turned on in the adipocyte, something we've already covered. I just want to remind you once again, when, I, when I'm giving you these lectures, I'm always thinking back about lectures we did previously because I want to make sure you have all this in mind. Because if you don't and you lose track of all the multiple layers of regulation, you're not going to get the big picture. And this is a, my only concern in authentic biochemistry. I do a lot of detail. I talk a lot about transcription factors, a lot about metabolic pathway, regulation, uh, cellular differentiation, homeostatic control in various regions of the central nervous system, um, indirect communication with the liver and the kidney, cardiac muscle, adipose and skeletal muscle, to name a few. And I know that all that comes together in my mind, and I, and I can see this whole picture, but I understand that when I'm lecturing, I need to remind you of things we've already talked about, okay? Otherwise, I worry that we're blowing past some really important key features. And that's what I keep, that's why I bring it back so we don't lose the larger picture. Now, obesity, of course, is very uh, prominent problem in the United States. And it's probably one of the major, if it's not the major risk factor for female breast cancer, for the incidence of breast cancer, its progression, its recurrence, and indeed, any metastasis, and then the potential for a bad prognosis. Now, epidemiological and clinical studies, and these are more now pertaining just to humans, so we're moving away from the animal models, does definitely provide evidence that obesity increases the risk for breast cancer in women, particularly in postmenopausal women, particularly those that are on endocrine therapy. And what happens in this system is you get endocrine therapy resistance, right? So estrogen replacement stops functioning in the postmenopausal women. And then this leads to this obesogenic and then uh, potential for breast cancer, sequelae. So the obese breast cancer patients are more likely to be diagnosed with a larger, higher grade tumor 
They have an increased incidence for um, metastasis and, of course, unfortunately, a higher risk for recurrence, even after pharmacotherapy or surgery or radiotherapy, and with that uh, higher mortality. Okay. So high body mass is associated with larger and more aggressive tumors in, in the breast cancer lineage, as well as other cancer lineages. Okay. Obesity is in, in humans is characterized by an increase in the production of insulin from the beta cells of the pancreas, of course, and multiple growth factors which can be secreted from leukocytes and lymphocytes, as well as from the liver. This leads to a low-grade chronic inflammation because you get an increase in the secretion of IL-6 and other pro-inflammatory cytokines. All of this is involved in the regulation of breast cancer progression. Now, the animal models seem to... Um, uh, maintain a good repertoire of evidence that can be used when studying human cancer. And so working with transgenic murine models or syngeneic murine models where the human immune system has been integrated into the rodent, um, you can take a look at immune functions and separate that out from tumor progression. Okay? And this is where a lot of the literature um, has been published, where you look at the pro-inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha and interleukin-6 and determine that those two pro-inflammatory cytokines actually turn on NF-kappa B and STAT3 and that those two transcription factors ultimately lead to chronic inflammation, which is linked to breast cancer. So in conjunction with that, okay, a corollary to that, is you begin to get infiltration of pro-inflammatory macrophages, which continue to spin out um, pro-inflammatory cytokines. And this occurs within the tumor microenvironment. And what this does, of course, is enhance cancer progression and morbidity mortality, right? And we've talked in just recently about the TAMs. These are the tumor-associated macrophages. And there's a correlation with increased angiogenesis with these macrophages. And that, of course, leads to more carbon source, more oxygen, more tumor growth and development. So you get metastasis and you get uh, much lower survival rates from breast cancer patients. So obviously, this lipid component is one that needs to be targeted, right? Because it looks like the lipid component is locked into, because of obesity again, right? All the way back to the level of obesity, what I was just talking about with dyslipidemia in the adipose, seems to be linked to the higher circulation of pro-inflammatory cytokines, and then the turning on the transcription factors and multiple subcellular sites, the turning on the macrophages in, for example, the breast cells, and this then will lead to, okay, macrophages associated with, with the breast environment will lead to this Increased transcription factors, increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines, and then this explosion of the um, progression of the breast cancer. Okay, and all of this is going to be obviously immunologically um, defined based on the lack of control over pro-inflammation 
versus uh, inhibition of inflammation. Now, you might think that that's counterintuitive because, of course, a lot of the immunologics that are out there try to control, for example, T lymphocytes through the CTL4 pathway or the program death pathway, the PDL pathway, uh, PDL ligand, to try to promote the activation of T lymphocytes to integrate and localize to an active tumor, including a breast tumor. This is all positive immunotherapy for breast cancer, as well as multiple other forms of cancer. So you might wonder, isn't that a pro-inflammatory response? It is, but it's under the conducted regulation of T lymphocytes. So you have to, you have to deconstruct any ideas you have that just simply having a pro-inflammatory state will lead to a decrease in uh, cancer cell uh, metabolism and growth and metastasis because it should do that, but it depends on where you're getting the massive production of pro-inflammatory cytokines. If it's occurring in the tumor bed itself, the tumor microenvironment because of the macrophages, it can actually lead to this hyperinflammatory response, which will actually cause more extracellular matrix dissimulation and then metastasis. Whereas the T lymphocytes may be generating their own uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines will do targeted and also natural killer cells, targeted destruction of cancer cells because of the cell-cell contact mediated responses. You see now where you get more depth when you listen to authentic biochemistry. And finally, we're going to end without being cut off by time. Uh, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the fourth day of April 2022 as spring finally comes on in the American Pacific Northwest. Bye for now. <laughs>